Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Welcome back, everybody. We're in week two of a four-week message series called The Bible for Grown-Ups. Now, uh, last Sunday we kicked this off, and I shared the first part of this message series, and when I went home after church, our children, my wife was that lovely person hosting this morning, we went home, our children had been watching the service, and a couple of my older kids said, hey, Dad, that was super helpful, like, that made sense, and it answered some questions I'd never thought of, and uh, my youngest daughter, which my wife mentioned, Nora, she's 10, she turned to me and she's like, honestly, Dad, I didn't really pay much attention. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, it wasn't even for me. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, it's for grown-ups, right? She assumed that, anyway. The idea behind this message series is simply this, that so many people like myself were handed a Bible when we were kids. Someone gave us a Bible and said, this is God's word. Every word of it is true. Believe it. Do what it says. And I don't disagree with those statements. They're just really simplistic. And so as a kid, that that made sense and, and embraced it, but... But nobody ever told me why I should believe it, why I should trust it. And so, consequently, some people grew up with a Bible in their hands, believing it's God's Word, but over time they began to doubt and become skeptical because maybe their view on the Bible was challenged. Maybe someone asked questions that they couldn't answer, and they, maybe someone in school told them it's just a book of myths, and here's errors in it, and all that kind of stuff. So you begin to become skeptical. And so if that's you, this message series is for you. Maybe you've never given the Bible serious consideration. You've just been like writing it off for your entire life. This message series is for you. As I said last week, sometimes the way we explain things to children can be very different than the way we explain things to adults. For example, um, if my five-year-old came to me, I don't have a five-year-old, but when I had a five-year-old, they came to me and said, hey, dad, how does a car work? I would probably explain it like this. You put the key in, you turn it on, step one. Step two, you put it in gear. Step three, press the gas pedal to go and the brake to stop. And I'm telling you, a five-year-old will be like mind blown. Like, whoa, that's a lot of steps. That's complicated. I know how to drive a car. Now, you, you, when your kid's 10 or 11 years old, they're like, hey, why do we have to put gas in the car? And why do you have to change the oil? And you say, oh, because the heart of the car is, a, is something called a motor. And that motor burns fuel and it uses oil to do what it does to turn a crankshaft which turns the tires. And it's like mind blown, amazing detail. And then, of course, you can go to college and study mechanical engineering or automotive, and you begin to learn about things like horsepower, torque, compression, valves, cylinders, timing chains, differentials, gear ratios, and you begin to realize how complicated and how beautifully designed vehicles really are. It's amazing that you drove here today. The amount of technology and engineering that went into that vehicle that brought you here is unbelievable. But we don't explain that to a little child. So likewise, when we open up the Bible, it is beautifully complex and beautifully deep. And the more you understand the history of this book and you learn how the various parts fit together, interact with one another, how there's this incredible story that weaves itself throughout the entire book, your mind will become blown. And the deeper you get, the more you will love and appreciate this book. So what we wanted to do over these four weeks is talk about the story of the Bible. Because here's the thing, many people know Bible stories, okay? Many people know Bible stories, they learned about David and Goliath, and they've learned stories about Jesus and all the things he did. But very few people, even those who grew up in church, know the story of the Bible. How did this book 
come to be? How did we, how did we end up with this book? And, and why is it so significant? And why should we trust it? Here's another question. We have to ask ourselves, how should we read it? How should we read the Bible? And, and there's lots of different approaches for how you read and interpret the Bible. But I got to tell you, like, when you begin to look at it, there are history documents, law documents. There are biographical documents. There are, there's poetry in there. There's law. There's just all these incredible components. And each of them needs to be viewed in its proper context. And one of the questions that I think is really important as we open up the Bible and begin to read it is to ask, what was the literal or the, the actual um, message that the author was trying to communicate? Like, what was Matthew trying to communicate when he wrote his gospel? What was, what was David trying to communicate when he wrote his psalms? Like, what, what's the truth that is in there? And of course, the reason why we have to ask questions like this is because many of the New Testament and Old Testament authors actually used metaphors and symbolic language to help us understand things. And you have to be able to recognize that and interpret it. So, for example, David says this. He says, the Lord is my rock. Now, how many people think that he meant God is a rock in his garden? He didn't, he didn't mean that. What he was saying is God is eternal. He is my foundation. He's the thing I stand upon, the solid rock of my life. And he meant that literally, but he's using a metaphor that we can understand. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus stands up in, uh, I think it's the Gospel of John, and he says this. He says, I am the door. Now, do you think the people that were listening to him thought he was a door? No. Did Jesus literally mean he's a door? Yes. Right? Because a door is a passageway from one place to another place. And when Jesus says, I am the door, he's like, I'm literally the only passageway into eternity, the only passageway to the Father. I am, it's a more literal door than even the ones you walked through when you came in. But he's not saying, I have a door handle, and a, like, he's not, so he's literally talking about himself, he's talking about, so there's a metaphor, do you see what I'm saying? When the ancient uh, children of Israel came into the land of Canaan, they surveyed the land, and you know what they said? They said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you think they found a stream? With milk in it? No. It's symbolic. So one of the things you have to do as you read the Bible is you have to know the context. You have to know the authors. You have to know what they're trying to communicate and how all the pieces fit together. And the more you know the story of the Bible, okay, the story of the Bible actually, the story of the Bible sheds light on how we read, interpret, and apply what the Bible says. And I said this last week, and I stand by it, that knowing the story of the Bible is almost as important as knowing what it says because people take what it says all the time out of context and they do damage to the church and to the world and to the message of Christ. So we need to know the story of the Bible. We need to know how it all fits together. So last week's message could really be summarized in a couple of statements. Here's the first one, that Jesus didn't write it, okay? So in case you're new to the Bible and you thought Jesus came to earth, grabbed a pen and wrote the, everything that's in this book, he didn't do that, okay? Jesus didn't write it, but this is really important. Jesus is the reason we have it. And we learned last week that Jesus came, he led his disciples around, uh, they thought he was the Messiah, they believed he was the Son of God, and then he died. And they were like, what just happened? They were hopeless, they were scared, they were hiding, and something happened. We talked about this. Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, Jesus rose, and because he rose, because he rose, those same disciples who were hiding scared began to boldly proclaim a resurrected Jesus. Many people saw Jesus, and because of it, accounts of his life were written. We have four accounts of Jesus' life. We have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have these accounts 
in the Bible because Jesus rose. And because he rose, the church began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. Because he rose, uh, these eyewitnesses and early church fathers began to write letters to encourage and correct the early church. And all these documents that were written because Jesus rose would ultimately end up in this book at a much later time. Okay? So I want to go back to the first century. Because one of the things that's interesting when we study the Bible is that we have to understand the worldview of the people to whom it was written. Okay? For example, in our context, one of the big arguments in our current modern world is this argument. Is there a God or is there no God? We're talking about atheism, which is the belief that there's no God, no external force, just people, matter, stuff. Or is there a God, whether it's the God of the Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, whatever. So it's like, which of those two is it? That wasn't even a discussion in the first century. Nobody was an atheist, at least that I know of, in the first century. And what we discover is this setting for the New Testament when Jesus arrives is, is in the Roman Empire, okay? And some of you will know the history of the Roman Empire. It was a massive empire spreading throughout the Middle East and beyond. Huge in its scope, extremely powerful. But the interesting thing about the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire was polytheistic. And that's a big word that means they believed in and worshipped many gods. And, 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 and this was not new to the Roman Empire. In fact, the entire ancient world was polytheistic. Before the Roman Empire came to power, guess who was in power? The Greek Empire. They were also polytheistic. And before the Greeks was the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, and they were also polytheistic. And before them, Babylon the Great, polytheistic. So the entire known world worshipped and believed in many gods. And so when the Romans would invade a country, they wouldn't come into the country and be like, oh, you have your gods? Get rid of them, destroy the temples. They didn't do that. They came in and said, oh, you can keep your gods, but we're going to add the Roman gods. And by the way, the Roman gods are better because we won the war. And so they would, they would insert their Roman gods and they would require the people they conquered to worship their gods as the greatest gods instead of saying, your gods don't exist. So this was the way the world was. Families would have their own gods. People were worshiping cows and animals and the sun and the moon. People were worshiping all kinds of things and that was cool. And Rome didn't mind as long as you worship Caesar and the Roman gods and kept them happy. And this is where things get interesting, because while the Roman Empire was polytheistic, the early church, the early Christians, the early Christians were monotheistic. So you can imagine um, the tension that arises, because a monotheistic means you believe there is only one God, and you refuse to worship any other gods. And so the early Christians said, we're not worshiping any idols, we're not worshiping Roman or Greek deities or any other gods, we're only worshiping the one true God as revealed in Jesus, his son. That's it. We refuse to worship any other God. This became extremely important. And over the centuries, as the church grew, there was a greater number of people who refused to worship the Roman gods, which is why they were persecuted. They weren't persecuted because they believed in Jesus. They were persecuted because they refused to worship the gods of the Romans. They were monotheistic. But here's the problem. When this church message began, the the message of Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire... People who were Greeks and Romans and other nationalities who grew up with a worldview that there are many gods and we are here to serve and appease those gods, they had to radically shift the way they viewed the world. Their whole worldview was reversed when they came to trust in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. And all of a sudden, Greeks and Romans who grew up worshiping all of these gods would only worship the one true God as revealed in Jesus. Can you imagine the shift in culture the impacts that would have on their families, their workplace, everything 
uh, was, was shifting around them. And one of the problems with a major shift in the way, in the things you believe, is that your worldview shifts, right? So, for example, if you grew up an atheist and you come to believe in God, it, it will change the way you look at the world. You'll look out and you'll see the beauty of God's creation. You'll look out and you'll go, what is my purpose and destiny that I was created for? Like, that all changes, And likewise, for these early Christians, they grew up with all these myths and legends of of how they were created by the gods and their role to serve the gods and all of this stuff. This was a worldview. And all of a sudden, they're now worshiping a new god and they're going, what's our creation story? And that's what we're going to look at today, the creation story. Because um, when Gentiles, okay, these are non-Jews, when Gentiles began to follow the Jewish Messiah, so imagine Romans and Greeks who grew up worshiping other deities, They start trusting in Jesus, who happens to be Jewish. And they realize that Jesus not only was Jewish, but he read, believed, and trusted the Jewish scriptures so much so that he quoted them and called them the word of God. And so they're following a Jewish Messiah. They began to study the sacred text of the Jews. This is significant. Imagine Romans opening up Jewish scriptures for the first time and going, What is in here? And as they read, they discover within the law and the prophets, which is is another uh, term that we use to talk about the Jewish scriptures. So as they begin the law, the law tells us how we came to be. There's a creation story. And so the creation story of the Jews very quickly became the creation story of the Christians, which is absolutely incredible. And with that, I'm going to just give me a second. I want to check our poll and see how you guys are doing. Let me just see. Uh Uh-huh. All right, results. Let's see how you did. 75% of you got the correct answer. Here's the question. Who wrote the book of Genesis? And that's the book we're looking at today. Who wrote the book of Genesis? There were four options given. Moses, Joshua, Paul the Apostle, and Jesus. And 75% of you accurately selected Moses. And that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Good job, guys. That's really good. Yeah, you guys are enthusiastic about that. So today we're going to look at the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis, particularly the first three chapters, which have the creation story, this particular text has been widely studied, widely um, studied by theologians, but also by scientists and historians, and there has been no shortage of controversy around these opening texts of the Jewish sacred scriptures in the book of Genesis. And I guess in a way, the Genesis account in the Bible actually gives us a worldview. And so if somebody wants to discredit the Bible or discredit Christianity, they often go to Genesis. And they go, oh, this is crazy. God created this. And oh, and then there's a snake that's talking. And they just kind of dismiss it all without giving it careful consideration. And what I want you to see today is that the Genesis account in the Jewish scriptures is is so significant when read in its context. When you, when you look at the culture in which it was written, to the people, the, the themes that are in it, it is absolutely brilliant and has impacted our world in a way that we still cannot even fathom. Um, so, again, when people, when people approach the book of Genesis, they often, um, they often look at it, you know, in our modern context, people look at the book of Genesis and they go, it's not very scientific. Because they're asking the questions of how and when. How did God create it and when? How old is the earth? Is the earth 6,000 years old or 2 billion years old? And there's all these questions, right? And, and I believe the Bible speaks to some of those things, but I really think that the Genesis account was, was not written primarily to tell us about the how and the when. It's primarily about the who and the why. 
when you read it, you, you discover the Genesis account tells us who created everything and why he created it. And those are the big questions, the existential questions of who we are and how we view the world. And it sets in motion a worldview that allows us to properly interact with all of creation. So the book of Genesis was written by Moses, as we already said. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is this, this was actually written um, when Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery through the wilderness. They were there for about 40 years. And while they were in the wilderness, Moses penned the first five books of the Bible, called the Law. And in there is the creation account. So this would have been written somewhere around like 30, so 1400 BC, which is 3400 years ago. Think about that. 3,400 years ago, the words that we're going to be reading today would have been written by uh, by Moses. Now, in in around 1850. Uh, there was an archaeological discovery, and this is significant historically because around 1850 they found these ancient tablets from ancient Babylon, which would have been a competing dynasty at the time, right? And in it they found these stone scrolls with the creation account of the ancient Babylonians. They call it the Enuma Elish, means went on high, okay? And in the Enuma Elish, as they translated these ancient tablets, which are roughly from the same time period as Moses. And they translated these tablets and they began to see there's a lot of similarities. Like some of the language and some of the things it talks about really match up well with the book of Genesis. And so what happened was uh, scholars 150 years ago began to make this argument. They began to say that the Hebrews borrowed from the other ancient creation stories. It's logical. So Moses, as he writes down the creation account, well, he just, he just took some of the Babylonian stuff, took some of the Egyptian stuff, and wrote his own version of it, and then gave it to the people. That's the argument. Over the next hundred years, that argument would be entirely abandoned for this reason. When you compare the Genesis account of Babylon and Egypt with the Genesis account of the Hebrews, the Jewish Bible, they are so radically different in their direction and the themes that run under it, it they could not be more different, even though they share some similarities. Um, in fact, um, the Genesis account stands in startling contrast to the other creation stories. And you're going to see that as we go through it. Okay, you're going to see this, how different it really is. So uh, here's what we do. Let's take a look at the first three words of the Jewish scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Bible, the book of Genesis, has been saying for 3,400 years that everything that exists at a beginning. Scientists for the last thousand years did not agree with that. They, they assumed that everything that exists has always been. It took science 3,300 years to catch up with what the Bible already said because in 1927, in 1927, there was a, um, a Belgian physicist named George Lemaitre. And George Lemaitre was, was staring through a telescope at the stars and observing things, and he came up with a theory, a theory that would later become called the Big Bang Theory. How many of you heard of the Big Bang Theory? Yeah, I got a little image of it here. <clears throat> and what he said, George Lemaitre, his theory was that as he looked at the stars, he noticed that all of the solar systems and the stars and the planets were all moving further apart. And therefore, they all had a common origin, that there was some sort of explosion where they all came into existence and they continue to move out apart from each other. And, and this idea that everything came in a... In a fraction of a second, everything that exists, sun, moon, stars, galaxies, all of it came into existence in a fraction of a second. Scientific people were like, yeah, I don't think so. They pushed back on it. 
A few years later, the Hubble telescope technology, they were able to see that this was in fact true. And over time, more and more evidence continues to point that the Big Bang Theory is in fact correct. Now, years ago, someone came to me and they're like, hey, how do you explain the Big Bang Theory? Do you even believe in it? Aren't you a pastor? You don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. I said, sure I do. And they were shocked. Like, you believe in the Big Bang Theory? Yeah. God spoke and bang, there it was. So the Big Bang Theory just simply says that everything came from a single origin. Scientists cannot explain where the energy and the matter came from or what caused it or what started it. The Bible addresses the who and the why. God spoke and everything that is came to be. This, it's in the first three words of our text, let's take a look at what it says next. It says, in the beginning, God created. Now, you, you might read this and go, okay. But in the context that this was written, remember, the entire known world was what? Polytheistic. So when Moses pens these words, in the beginning, God, singular, everyone would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you mean the gods? No. There's one God, one creator. And God has uh, created everything. Again, if you go to the Babylonian myths, and you go to the Egyptian creation accounts, and you look at them, here's what you will find. A whole bunch of gods, most of them that created themselves that are warring with each other. So you have these gods that are doing battle. You can read Greek mythology, Roman mythology. All these gods are doing battle for the top place. It's violent. In the Babylonian myth, or I should say the Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish, there's this, there's this incredible um, story in there where, where Marduk, one of the gods, kills the goddess Tiamat by firing an arrow through her, in her mouth and through her neck. And then, then he cuts her body in half and he creates the heavens out of one half of her body and the earth out of the other. Children's devotionals in Babylon would have been awesome. Yep. But these creation stories of the other nations were violent. It was gods creating and being created by body fluids and all kinds of crazy stuff and warring with each other. And as I said earlier, the creation story for you actually sets your worldview for how you would view the rest of the world. In the beginning, God created. And here's what it says next. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses, as he's penning this creation account, is saying, listen, not only is there one God, not only is there a beginning, and he started it all, but he created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, and all the stuff we observe in the night sky is all created by him. Later in the chapter, he tells us why the sun and the moon were created, why the stars were there. It's like for times and seasons, it's like a giant clock spinning around us so we can know what's coming. Incredible, incredible stuff. But what Moses is doing is he's, he's actually deconstructing the very things that he would have been taught. So for example, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court. He would have been taught to worship the sun god, Ra, the moon god, the Nile god. They worship calves and animals of all different kinds. And so Moses, who was raised in that, that, that tradition, is coming and writing this text saying, no, 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 let me tell you. It's, it's almost as if the Genesis account is like, let me correct all these other myths and tell you how it really is. One God created all things, the heavens and the earth. The sun that you worship, God put there to light the earth. The moon that you worship is there as a light for the night. The animals, he's going he's gonna to reshape the entire worldview of the people of that day. And not only does, does this biblical creation account change radically the way people in that day would have viewed the world, when it comes to the creation of humankind, 
It's radical beyond all belief. Let, let's first look at the Enuma Elish. In the Enuma Elish, um, it tells us how and why Marduk, right, the god that, that killed Tiamat and rose to kind of the supreme god, that god Marduk, why he created humankind. And it's going to tell us that he created humans to be slaves to the gods. And he created them to be savage people. Here's a quote from the Enuma Elish. Here's what it says. This is Marduk now, the god who's supposedly creating people. I will establish a savage. Turn to somebody near you and say, you savage. <laughs> Not a lot of participation on that one. Man shall be his name. <laughs> savage man I will create and he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. The gods, they're lazy, they need help. And so they create, he creates humankind to serve the gods who are violently warring for power and position. Now, can you imagine how that impacts your worldview if that's the account of your creation? And so when you see the Babylonian people fighting and killing one another and fighting for power, they are literally living out the world. For, they're simply acting like their fathers in the heavens. They're living out their creation story in the way that they live their lives. So let's look at the creation account that we find in the book of Genesis. When it comes to the creation of humankind, here's what it says in verse 26 of the first chapter. Then God said, let us make mankind in what? Our image. This is so significant. This doctrine that we're just going to talk about for a minute is called the Imago Dei, image of God. The idea that all humankind, men, women, children, people of every race, every color, every gender, every single human being was imprinted with the image of God. It, it puts worth and dignity on every single person. We take that for granted. In our world, you can travel around the world and there's something called human rights, that every person has dignity and value and they deserve to be treated fairly and not to be killed and not to be made slaves. And we have these human rights codes, but there's no precedent for them in our current worldview, like in a secular worldview. If you say we're just evolved from animals and we're just matter and we're just mammals and there is no purpose, no creator, then why are people intrinsically valued? There's no reason. Our entire Western world and the freedom that we have and human rights all comes from this biblical notion. It's found nowhere else. And people want to throw the Bible away, but man, I'm telling you, this idea has created the very world of freedoms that we live in. It's It's unbelievable. And he says, in the beginning, he created. And then he said, let us make mankind in our image. In our image. He goes on to say this in the next verse. He says, in our likeness, so that they may rule over or have dominion over. Now, he's about to list all the things that the ancient people worshipped. And Moses is saying, not only do we not worship the sun and the moon and the animals, but they were created for us. Humankind is at the center of creation. That there is a God who created things on purpose in an orderly fashion with humankind at the very center of it so that they may rule over, next slide, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all of the wild animals. Isn't that crazy? You see how different this is from the Egyptian creation account, from the Babylonian creation account. And then here's what it says next. It says, in summary, so God created mankind in his own image Stamped with the image of God. That's the thing that gives human dignity, value, and worth. It's not how much money you make. Somebody who's smart doesn't have more value and dignity than somebody who is not smart. Someone who is older or richer is not better than somebody who is younger or poor. Intrinsic value is given because 
We are made in the image of God. That's why. He created them. This is cool. Male and female, he created them. This is a text that's 3,400 years old that elevates men and women side by side, authenticated with the image of God both together. Now, I know history has taken us in all kinds of directions with male-female relationships, but right from the beginning in the creation account, God dignifies both men and women together in unity. It has taken civilization 3,400 years to even begin to catch up with what the creation account teaches us. So essentially what's going on here is Moses is introducing um, a radically different, unparalleled, and untested worldview. And over time, this worldview, as I've been talking about, human dignity, purpose, has shaped our culture in ways we cannot even understand. When, when compared with each other, let's take a look. The Enuma Elish tells us that we are a slave to the gods, here to serve them, warring with one another for power and position with no hope of eternity. That's the Enuma Elish, right? The, the new atheist account, right, says we evolved from nothing or from something and evolved over time and eventually became high-functioning mammals. There is no purpose. You weren't created for a purpose. You're not going anywhere. Um, you just simply are. You're a slave to your DNA, and that's it. But here's what the biblical account tells us, that we were created by a mindful, personal God who created you and I with a purpose for eternity, that we were impressed with the very image of God, that there's dignity, value, and worth on each and every one of us. Isn't that crazy? This ancient document sets a different trajectory for the history of the world and all those who believe in it. And not only um, does God create mankind, but he gives them the freedom to choose, and they fall in sin, and then God is going to do the most un ungodsly thing. Because in all the ancient creation stories, people were there to serve the gods. And in the biblical account, even in the third chapter, we find God already beginning to work a plan to enter into his creation to seek and to save and redeem the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, but all of his creation. And this God who created all things sets about to restore and redeem it. That is so far from any ancient creation account that you can imagine. And eventually, and we're going to talk about this more in the next couple of messages, eventually when the time was right, he would join us. This is radically different than any other faith in the world. That the God who created all things not only cared enough but loved enough to enter into the very creation to save it. Unbelievable, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's where I want to end. Um, in the first century, Romans and Greeks began to embrace this Jewish Messiah. So they began to take seriously the Jewish sacred scriptures, and they began to read it. And you know what they discovered when they began to read it? They discovered the Jews had it right all along. They're like, oh, wow, the Jewish Hebrew people have actually been worshiping the one true God long before the Greeks or the Romans ever even came up with theirs. And the creation story of the Jews was also their creation story. And this, this not only encouraged them, but it fueled their love and passion for the Jewish sacred scriptures, which is why they became included in the Christian Bible in the first place. And so we're going to continue the story there next week. I'm going, to, I'm going to close in prayer and share a few announcements, and I hope you'll come back and join us as we continue the story of the Bible. 
Father, today as we consider the words of the creation account written by Moses so long ago, inspired by you, it is amazing when we consider the significance of what it says, of who created and why you created and how you loved us so much that you, you place dignity and value on every person and that even now you are working to redeem and save your people and your creation. Lord, help us as we review this material and study together. Help us to have a big view of who you are. Help us to love your word and the things that you have written down for us, these documents that have been protected and preserved. Help us to love them. And like David said, that they would be like honey on our lips, that we would want to eat them, that we would want to get them inside of us so we would know your law and know your word. Father, if there's anyone listening today, here in the room, online, if they have never surrendered their life to Jesus, if they have never said, I make you the Lord of my life, I pray that they would do that today and start a new journey with a new worldview, with the true God at the center of it all. And I pray that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.